yeah stick stick to the indisputables right like once you start saying like madonna's an artist then you're getting into murky waters <laughs> yeah and you got to start explaining the mechanisms and yeah, uh, yeah. that's what, that's when it goes down slowly <laughs> you broaden the definition it's like oh no self-expression is art like no it's not anyway <laughs> um well one of the ways yeah. i've been thinking about art is that it's a sensitivity to whole making which to me brings in this understanding of a polarity where the artist is sensitive to what makes a whole so what polarities are out of balance and this ability to imagine what needs to be brought in for something to be completed and you like you notice this in art is it 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 tends to complete something like it it sort of mirrors something back to you in a way that fills a hole and and creates a hole itself like for example when you're listening to a song you can often predict the next note because you're also sensing into the hole that the artist is making becoming egyptian so welcome welcome to the two of you welcome to our increasingly rapidly growing audience to becoming egyptian episode 19. Um, I'm joined yet again by a familiar face and an unfamiliar face. Um, yeah, this is one of my best friends, Tom Lyons. He is easily the most inspiring person I know and perhaps the most inspired person I know as well. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to be here with you, Tom and Session. Thank you, my friend. Those are very kind words. Kind, yeah. kind, kind words and honest words because Sid says that to me off camera as well tom about how much he loves you so this isn't like some spiel that he just put together for this episode well as i said the other day it goes both ways so thank you sid oh good um so the reason i wanted to talk today to you in particular tom was to have after a long time an ideas-based conversation rather than biographical, which has sort of been what we've been doing lately. So like the last four or five episodes have been really enjoyable, um, but they've been of a certain kind. So they've been talking about the person who's come on. We've been speaking about their life story more, um, less conceptual, more uh, interesting for a certain faction of person, uh, less interesting for me, I would say. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, it's all it's all been about particulars and events and stuff. And when those particulars and events in someone's lives are interesting, that whole episode becomes really interesting. And like talking to Spencer, which was last week's episode, um, was probably mine and Sessions' favorite so far. Very very enjoyable. Um, but we do like to keep turning. Six weeks into ago now. Six. Yeah, the, the dates are modeled up, but. Um, yeah, we do like to keep changing the whole, um, you know, like what kind of conversation we're having from um, week to week. So I did want to make it a bit more ideas based. Um, did you want to add anything before we start session? No, I didn't want to add anything. And with the lag that we have on the Zoom, it's probably not smart to add anything anyways. You know, we want to have a flowy conversation. So I'd like to proceed with 100% of what you just laid down, Sid. Okay, awesome. Um, well, yeah, like before we get into some of the stuff I wanted to touch on today, did you want to give a slight intro of yourself, Tom, what you do and sort of, yeah, give us a mini spiel. Sure. Yeah. So I, I like to think of myself as someone who builds things, but probably from a place of deeper consideration than maybe the average project or designer or engineer i've been quite heavily influenced by the domains of philosophy spirituality religion psychology but i also have a strong orientation towards systems and like more of a pragmatic flair to actually making something functional in the world and so i feel like i at least in my working life i occupy that bridge between the more kind of ethereal but then also like the deeply practical and grounded. So from a very high level, that's sort of my, my creative work. 
And then, yeah, beyond that, I just, I love people and the rest of my life is centered around the people that I love, friends, family, and all of that. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And so if that same question was asked to you about the elevator pitch of your life on the street and you had only like a word you could say, like, this is what I do, like I'm in tech or I'm in philosophy, like what's the sort of one thing you would say if you had to? I would say I'm in, in the business of love. <laughs> Very okay. Let's this go. is already such a Tom Tom episode. <laughs> And I wouldn't say business. <laughs> I'd just say I'm in love. Talk about an oxymoron, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Shall we get into it then? Yeah, please. That's in all right. Um, yeah. So one thought me and Session have been having sort of late night sessions on, you know, throwing ideas against each other and seeing what sticks, what is rubbish and using each other as regulation for is, um, so something that seems to be really pervasive in society is that all the women say there are no good men, right? All the men say there are no good women. Um, both seem to have sort of a, like a good ground to stand on when they say that. And they both seem to have a lot of anecdotal at least evidence for what that's worth for why they say this um men have a crippling fear of rejection um they say with good reason um the women say there's no strong assertive man you know like there's no traditional in all the good ways there's no traditional strong masculine lift um so the, i see a bit of a chicken or egg situation going on and we don't know like who's telling the truth are both right in their own way so just do you have any initial thoughts to both of you on this? Um, I do have a bit of a spiel on this, but I'll get some initial thoughts from the two of you on this first. Like, where do you stand on this? Is it, um, yeah, is it justified for both parties to be sort of thinking that way? I have plenty of thoughts, but Session, if you want to dive in first, go for it. Uh, um, I guess my initial thoughts on that are that the majority of women don't feel like that and the majority of men don't feel like that but the two percent that do are extremely vocal on like the social medias so they've amplified the situation to sound like the two percent's opinion is what the 90 percent's opinion is and i feel like um if you go talk to people that are actually grounded they've got a lot of hope for the opposite sex and for what they can find in the opposite sex but um with that being said like who's the first initiator of this problem i think it's probably men yeah well i i guess just because that i think you played that note very well like sort of speaking to the danger of these generalizations so i'll try to speak to the other side i think maybe what that is pointing at is just a general breakdown of culture so there's a sense in which the roles and the identities that had a kind of coherence to them and 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 functioned in the world that they grew inside of are largely starting to break down as a result of primarily technology but also kind of offshoots of technology mechanisms that play inside capitalism but yeah i think what that leads to is a kind of fragmenting of roles and identities and and for some people, that's very comfortable. People who tend to be more liberal and they want to see more diffusion and diversity and inclusivity. But for a lot of people who need more of a binary uh, model where they can clearly kind of state like, this is what this person should be doing. This is what a man is. This is what a woman is. They'll find that quite disconcerting. Living in a culture that's sort of in the process of either collapse or transformation. So I think that's largely what some people are speaking to is like, in a sense, we're, we're losing our ability, ability to orient ourselves, and roles are one of the, probably not the last thing to go, but once roles start breaking down, you're definitely entering into more of a chaotic phase of culture. Yeah. Yeah. So this general confusion, it's hard to sort of think of like a source that started it. It's just, all we know is that 
there is a like no one really knows what's going on and uh we can point to factors that might have you know might have contributed to it but it's hard to give a like source cause would you say I think you can definitely like point to various elements that would have that kickstart something like that, but it's naturally going to be too complex to model perfectly or in a way that could predict what the future would be like. But I think technology is a really important catalyst to look at. It's just extremely disruptive. Uh, and then also like part of technology is capitalism, which is really good at undermining certain forms of value that then over time lead to the breakdown of social cohesion yeah could you could you be a little more specific on what you mean uh when you say technology because uh there'll be a bunch of people who immediately think technology is what anything that makes a man's life easier and we've always had that a spears technology so like could you be more specific to like contemporary tech yeah, and I think it's important to look at like the way technology ratchets itself exponentially. So you have tools, technology being tools, which extend or amplify a capacity so it becomes more efficient or more um, effective. But then the capacity to build capacity also gets increased. So you're not just increasing capacity, also increasing the ability to increase capacity. And so that creates an exponential curve. And we're finding ourselves at a point in that curve now where innovation is happening so quickly that the structures that preserve value, important forms of value that you might find in say a spirituality or like a rich culture, they can't keep up with the speed of extraction that these tools afford us. This isn't my narrative, by the way. There's plenty of people sort of pointing in this direction, but it is an important one, I think, for like understanding the basis of where, where we're at right now. Right. Okay. So so one thing I've been thinking about, one of my favorite lines that I've ever read in any book, I wrote down and I wanted to read it out and see if it um, lands or if, if the whole uh, changing tech landscape means that those um, identities have shifted so far that this quote doesn't make sense anymore. Um, you may or may not instantly recognize who it's by, but um, so woman represents the totality of what can be known. Man is the one who comes to know. Woman is the guide to the sublime apex of sensuous adventure. By deficient eyes, she is reduced to inferior states. By ignorance, she is spellbound to banality and ugliness. She is redeemed by the eyes of understanding. So do you think that that is something that we can not cleanly categorize as outdated, but something that we have to look beyond slowly? I think the first move I'd make there is probably swapping out woman and man for masculine and feminine, because woman and man is more of a, like a biological form. Whereas for me, when you say masculine and feminine, you're talking more about an energy or an essence. Um, and I think that actually gives you a lot of affordances if you make that move, because then you can actually start identifying um, something more concrete that you can then say, yes, this has these qualities and this has these qualities. Whereas I think you'll run into problems more quickly if you try to attribute them to the forms, man and woman. Um I think as well, like one of the challenges we see philosophically is anything you try to ascribe to any category. So like the category of feminine or masculine, you'll eventually find a scenario where it seems to flip. So there's something to me about like a lot of the meaning that we ascribe to a category like masculine or feminine is going to be contextualized by the civilization of the moment uh, and i guess that does get to the heart of your question like is that statement as it stands applicable right now some of it yes i mean like there was a lot in there right like there was a lot of different kind of assertions and i feel like may maybe one thing i can draw out of that is 
there does feel to be a need to uphold the feminine in a certain way, but without turning the masculine into evil or, or dissociating from it or shadowing it. Um, and so, yeah, for me, like when we're dealing with these real deep categories of masculine and feminine, we always have to be careful not to dissociate from either of them because they're set up in a polarity. And so whatever context we find ourselves in at whatever point in history, for me, the deeper question is like, what elements are being embraced by a society and what elements are being outcast? And then it's about working with the one that's been outcast to bring it back in without then dissociating from the one that was prevalent. So right now in like capitalism is a masculine drive fundamentally, I would say. And we need to somehow like bring in more of the feminine value without dissociating from the masculine drive. Mr. Co-host, any thoughts perhaps on the, just the first part of the quote as well, which was, so woman represents the totality of what can be known. Man is who comes to know. And also based on what Tom said, any thoughts or feedback so far? Yeah. Can you sum up that quote in like what the mechanisms of that quote is? Cause I'm, I just can't really understand it in that terminology. Sorry. So a uh, woman represents the totality of what can be known. So if you think of man as sort of an avatar or icon, that's a searcher or a conquistador in the way we've been speaking about it, the thing that he is conquering is the woman. So it's very brash and very, um, by, I guess by today's standards, a barbarian take. Um, unless looked at specifically symbolically, um, consciousness is a masculine attribute. Um, again, symbolically, the feminine is the unknown and the unconscious. So sort of broad strokes, um, equalizing man to that which searches and woman to the land that is being searched and conquered and known and come to be known and come to be integrated. So, yeah, not really is it right or wrong, just um, any thoughts that that might spark, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't I don't feel like it's outdated. Perhaps, like Tom says, we just need to integrate the the feminine and masculine holistically rather than at the moment we have uh, one side of masculinity, one side of femininity and the other half blocked out on each side. And so we have a suboptimum environment, I guess. And I don't know really how we integrate that. But yeah, I, I think I agree with what Tom said there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, ju just briefly, and that, that was well said. Um, I think two other helpful terms might be potentiality and actuality. And then maybe between the potential and the actual, you find the real. What that'd be one way of thinking about this. And so, I again, I don't, I don't, wouldn't like to use woman and man, but to think of the feminine as being more potentiality, whereas the masculine being more actuality, that that can be a helpful framing. Um, right. Yeah. And then you can also think about the feminine as being more of an, a bottom-up emergence, and then the masculine being more of a top-down emanation that's constraining what can sort of spurt up through the quantum fluctuations what are your thoughts on this sid yeah i like the framing of potentiality and actuality it's one i think me and tom have discussed a few times um, in the last three years in various forms like knowingly or unknowingly i guess when we talk about um, man and his symbols, it, it tends to come up a lot. Um, I didn't, the, the first thing you said was a bit of a like wow moment for me because you said, um, between the potential and the actual, we find the real, um, I'm interested to know if that was just sort of, um, you're just saying it colloquially, or do you really mean between, um, is that the right sort of word there? Yeah, I think. Because we're right now we're at like maximum abstraction, right? We're kind of trying to distill all of these things into these sort of 
core categories to try to talk about a lot of things in a very short set of words. Um, And I'm always careful about, because it's almost like you're trying to do a kind of mathematics when you're setting up concepts like this, like where do they sit? What is the like right relationality between them? And in one sense that can be really powerful, but I also think it's often, it breaks down very quickly when you actually encounter the world. But yeah, I mean, the the real to me, I'd maybe say it this way, like the real is this profound capacity to like continually see things as they are, but also be able to project beyond them into what they could be. Because it's very easy to get lost in either of those modes, right? And that's often a psychological defense. Some people overly emphasize the actual through logic and they kind of, cut themselves off from the potential to gain certainty. Whereas some people just want to drift off into a dream state of potential. They live in their own fantasy. These are the artists. This is why they're so visionary. They can't even see what is all they can ever see is what could be. And both of those have terrible failure modes, but if they coexist together in a society where they can balance each other out, that's great. Yeah, just going back to the original question, Sid, with the new framing that like the new words that you're laying out, Tom, it's making it a bit clearer in my mind, you know, perhaps um, the reason, like you say, we've got this perfect polarity between the masculine and the feminine by design or whatever it is by, but um, by shadowing aspects of either side, we may have offset that polarity and that may be the core reason of the first question about why do women feel that men are not standing up to who they're meant to be and why do men feel that women aren't there as they're supposed to be there. Perhaps we've just upset that polarity a bit by not engaging all parts of what the masculine and feminine are supposed to be. And um, the polarity probably only exists when we have one-to-one and we probably have one sixth and one sixth at the moment and uh, so mm. we maybe don't have a polarity anymore at the moment yeah yeah i fully agree maybe the polarity is more than just a heuristic for concept and we it is it, it does have a real grounding in this world but only if done properly only if both sides are in harmony which i, I guess no one would disagree they're not at this stage yeah yeah, yeah. I just don't know how they come to be in the real. I just don't know if we've seen that before. Um, but yeah, I guess we work towards that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I think, and like just another note that's always important to bring in with this set of ideas is that a harmony is, it doesn't have to be a one to one, but it has to be like a, something that's complementary given the context so in one moment it might actually be it's like in a song that might be appropriate for the next note to be one that's extremely contrasted where you have 1000 percent femininity and a grain of masculinity but then in the next note that might need a change but i think yeah there's something about like the way the polarity plays the song is by a, a receptivity to the next note based on both what's come before actuality and what could be potentiality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why, which is why the artist has to necessarily be only forward looking, right? He has to, you can't forego the temporal aspect because there is only resolution to um what is what has been like what what is to come has to resolve what has been and vice versa and it there has to be that up i guess to put it um straightforwardly there has to be the ups and downs um which doesn't mean that when we're focusing on the up you know we've foregone something else it's just a temporary uh state of flux i guess yeah 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 i yeah i think I think me and you said have been obsessed with defining what an, what an artist is for like the past year, like two years, three years. And I think we've both come to the conclusion that there's very limited amount that we've ever actually seen. So I'm thinking like maybe five or six artists that have ever actually read about or seen. Um, and maybe if that polarity thing that we're talking about exists between the masculine and the feminine, I think, I, I don't think that the artist can be fully only forward looking. I think 
he has to have that polarity within him, the balance between um, forward looking and whatever, what is, sorry. So actuality and what was the other term? Sorry. Potentiality. Yeah. I think he, he has to have that balance or he or she or whatever has to have that balance within themselves because otherwise their commentary is going to be a bit skewed. The artistic commentary. That that's the other place where um we've gone back and forth, right? Like, is the role of an artist even to comment? <laughs> and if so, like culturally, socially, like this is just it opens up an endless web, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's better to just say David Bowie's an artist and not define it. <laughs> Picasso is an artist. Yeah stick stick to the indisputables right like once you start saying like madonna's an artist then you're getting into murky waters <laughs> yeah and you got to start explaining the mechanisms and yeah, uh, yeah. that's what, that's when it goes down slowly <laughs> you broaden the definition it's like oh no self-expression is art like no it's not anyway <laughs> um well one of the ways yeah. i've been thinking about art is that it's a sensitivity to whole making which to me brings in this understanding of a polarity where the artist is sensitive to what makes a whole. So what polarities are out of balance and this ability to imagine what needs to be brought in for something to be completed. And you like, you notice this in art is it, it, it tends to complete something like it, it sort of mirrors something back to you in a way that, fills a hole and and creates a hole itself like for example when you're listening to a song you can often predict the next note because you're also sensing into the hole that the artist is making sort of like there in art there is a perceived lack and then the artist is able to imagine what is needed to fill that like you're making say a meal like some kind of dish for dinner and if you're a sensitive chef, who I would say is a form of artist, you can get the palate of the meal and then identify that salt is missing. So there's an intuition into an aesthetic whole that you then have the insight of how to complete it. And it's creative because there's so many ways to make a whole by dialing up certain elements and bending certain things so you're not as an artist you're not just making a hole but you're also like warping holes in novel ways that open people up to new possible hole making yeah yeah right. yeah that's that's um it, which is definitely not the same as saying that we are asking for predictability and monotony right because just because you can sense the upcoming note is not the same as saying we want something that we know from start to finish. In fact, we want the opposite. We want it to challenge us. And the whole point of an artist is to extend frontiers. So yeah, like how creatively can you in a, form that compensatory relationship to make the whole is a good question for an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, if the whole making process is the artist's intention, then it's also one of the reasons why you might not know what the next note is going to be because um, like the salt example, perhaps a little bit of salt is needed, but a little less eggs are needed, you know? So the combination of what a whole yeah. is, like you say, Tom, might be changed. And that might be the exact reason why your predictability goes out the window with some artists because they're adding to a whole that, yeah the rest of the pie needs to be adjusted to accommodate the new piece they're putting in um to create the wholeness so yeah it, it plays into why it's predictable and why it can be unpredictable that's so, so that's really that's, I like that's that. the like that's the artist that rewrites the rule book right that's something we've talked about so much yeah i'm, yeah, I'm the, like the yeah the greatness and the artist how much that's tied in because what we've like what we've defined in our second episode is the the pillars <laughs> of greatness um it ties into a lot of these things about what the artists are capable of doing you know shifting entire generations thought patterns um being trailblazers all this kind of stuff plays into the whole plays into the whole making process i guess greatness And it, it is essential that it makes a whole, because to me, that's actually when it is art, 
because self-expression that is unintelligible is not art but you can you can have more or less sensitivity to a whole and one person's whole might not be identifiable to another person which is why art is so tasteful but the most incredible artists would just just obliterate your frame by going way outside the hole but then they make a move at the very end that reorganizes everything that you thought was chaos pure potential and then strikes it into a new intelligibility that actually puts you in a new reality yeah 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 that's why it could be so disturbing sometimes and uh to use the anderson todd word ambiguity tolerance it seems like the or phrase not word but it seems like they um they like to little they like to tickle your ambiguity tolerance yeah Any other thoughts on this before we shift a little? Uh, no, no, not for me. Thomas, happy to move on. Yeah, go for okay. it. Okay. All right. So I thought another thing I wanted to talk about was um, sort of, I guess, beating a dead horse, um, which is something I hate doing, but I I really had the I, urge I to that. do it today. You, yeah, yeah. We've had back and forth. I love about beating this. dead horses. He says the same thing. He's an artist. He says the same thing to me every day in very, very creative ways. But it's the same underlying thing I've heard like every past day. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's many ways to beat a horse. <laughs> yeah, don't don't let it um, stop you just because it's dead, right? Keep going. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, trying to build a case for like, I don't know. Let's let's talk about like the story that sort of guides us, say, in the 21st century or like the 20th and 21st century, um, but not in a Jungian myth kind of sense, just like a public uh, consciousness story that we all sort of subscribe to. Um, one sort of pattern I noticed recently was that only in the last 50 years do I think um, that story is something that's being given to us rather than us building it from the ground up, us being civilization or a nation state or whatever group is in question. I think the 70s, 1970s onwards is the first time that the story is actually being force fed down our throat rather than um, being organic and sort of, yeah, grassroots and ground up. Um, And I was thinking about, basically tertiary institutions and the whole, you know, the Peter Thiel line of thought of institutional decay. And somewhere in the early seventies, we realized that these things are headed into the ground. And then you have quotes from, I don't know who said it, but quotes like the whole paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, godlike technology is the fate of humanity, that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, it is true in the seventies, and, the, and there's theories as to why we're headed for institutional decline. And, you know, I can just see Eric Weinstein in the comments right now, like scurrying away saying it's physics, you idiots. Like it's because we stopped doing physics. But there's the tech argument that, you know, underlying growth stopped, real growth stopped, and now it's all propped up. There's the gimmick economy and all these words sort of floating around um, the intellectual space as well as the cultural space, digitally and in person. Um, so... I was thinking about how like to cover up this Ponzi scheme, which I think that's what it is. Um, eventually who the powers that be, and I don't want to get into the whole conspiracy thing, but whoever is running the show, whoever's the puppet master, they started this globalism agenda, right? This, we are the world initiative. And obviously in retrospect, you can trace this back to the sixties and you can say, no, it was actually an explosion in, like waking awareness and drugs and um, Woodstock, that that whole movement that contributed. But I want to be more specific because if you say the 60s thing, then you can also talk about like suburban malaise in the 50s leading to the 60s. And it's just sort of infinitely going backwards and backwards. So I was trying to pinpoint one particular um, decade or period in Western, specifically American history, um, that sort of kickstarted this whole thing. And I think it was the whole We Are The World initiative, especially that iconic music video of like the 20, you know, the 20 leading singers in the world coming together, singing about how um, we need to help like Edwina in Africa or something like this, like when your own people don't have houses. 
And I just find this so crazy. And I, I think that this is the first time, maybe since the invention of the printing press, that the narrative that's being handed down to the average Joe in the West, especially, is clearly emanating from a source. Um, again, like, it, because it's like you've realized that the institution institutions don't work. So now you've propped up a story about how you care about Africa, which if you did, that would be great. And if you did something, that would be even better. But it's clearly like artificial. We care about Africa. So that means that we don't have to pay you the thing we promised we'd pay you, which is, you know, a very good, esteemed, reputed job for all the studying you've done in university or whatever you've done. Plus, it gives us a holier than thou status. We have the rank of a philanthropist, even though this is just a way for us to get out of helping our own native people. What are your guys' thoughts on all of that? Um, so, uh, you're just breaking out for a second. Wait one sec. I think you're back. Okay. I just, yeah. the, the question is this question about, um, sorry, what was, what's in charge of the breakdown of like educational institutions or what, what's the, what's like the, the, yeah, question, yeah. the question? I'll, I'll put a question at the end of it. So do you think that, um, we are in a time period where the myth or the story or the narrative that's guiding the majority of the people is for the first time disingenuous? Cause normally when I think of something that, um, is an ideal or is romanticized by a group or a herd of people, it's something that they've rallied together for. It's the result of unionization sometimes literally like a labor union, you know, rallying their troops. Um, but this feels very, very given on a plate to you and everyone's just eating it up. So do you think that we're in a novel situation of, um, yeah, being handed a story rather than creating organically your own story or not? Uh, Tom, do you mind getting first on this one? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's like a there's a lot to consider in a question like this, naturally. I would say that one of the novelties of our time is that firstly, like the level of global awareness through information technologies. So what is one of the things that that does is it it radically challenges any pre-existing myths and not just global awareness and because global awareness creates exposure, right? You see other myths that you normally wouldn't be able to encounter in such depth and in such realness. Typically they would be put as an opposition and then kept out of the culture that you were inside of. Now we've got all of this blending, mass blending and absurd levels of blending between cultures. Um, Yeah, and so with that, the like centrality of the myths of the past are being called into question. And, the, and then you layer in science, which science is a different mode of understanding and language, but we've made the mistake of thinking that myth and science are part of the same mode of knowing. And, and then with that, science tries to disprove myth when actually they're just speaking to different layers of our intelligence mythic intelligence is as valid as scientific intelligence they just are functionally different they're operating on different planes and so you have blending of culture you have the undermining of myth through science where people are not understanding the role of myth at least some people and so what that does for me is it opens up a void where anything can now fill the story of the grand narrative. And then you have obviously the postmodernism where you get this very intense deconstruction and claims that grand narratives don't exist, that they're being used as tools for power. And so, yeah, what I'm wanting to point out is just a big space, like a big vacuum that now sits in the culture 
and it's not just a big vacuum it's also a uh, a vacuum with a machine that's running a kind of optimization function which is capitalism so capitalism has a goal but it doesn't have a value and the space of value is empty and so what people are doing on mass is they're inserting their values into the void under the desire of optimizing this capitalistic function and so to answer your question said yeah i think that we're now in a, a time that's perhaps unique in that people are able to assert any values without them really being challenged by any kind of historical coherence and a lot of the people who are doing that are doing so under the the desires and drives of capitalism and so there's that and then just very briefly the other thing is i i don't agree that the this world worldly globalistic consciousness is entirely um a deception i think there's also like a real intuition there a necessary intuition which is if we're going to have information technologies which break borders you also need a coherent global myth even if it's a meta myth uh, and so i think there's a real thing there and everyone we need a we need a myth or multiple myths and everyone's going to be fighting for that those people are going to have different intentions some worse than others but yeah i think you're pointing to a real thing yeah yeah i the um we spoke about this the other day tom and you two said like about the amount of digital nomads that we've been seeing on our travels and uh, um what do you call it it just that's what the whole situation reminds me of now is that we've all been turned into di digital nomads and um the information technologies at hand everything is so accessible and it makes so much sense to me that we're lobbying to save the people in Africa because in America, they never knew what was happening in Africa before. And so um, I don't I don't even think it's malicious. The the fact that they're trying to help Africa first before America now, I, I just think that's what the technologies brought about. Um, and we just didn't have maybe the systems in place to deal with information like that coming about. You, you know, you're not supposed to see that much evil all at once come up like um yeah you just you're not meant to see that and so i don't think that like we're worse now i just think uh we've been overloaded maybe potentially um without the without the infrastructure the mental infrastructure or the societal infrastructure um to cope with it and yeah i think maybe going forward especially if we're going to go to mars we do need a earthly global myth <laughs> because there's no point fighting with Russia if we don't even know what's going on on Mars. Yeah, yeah. Um, what seemed to be common across what both of you said was that there is this information overload that's causing a lot of the hysteria. Um, and I agree, like that's a common thing. People are saying what you just said now, Sashin, right? About that we need a global narrative. If we And the only way we're going to get that is if we have a um otherworldly um foe and so like <laughs> there's also talks in some of the unfortunately i have to report this but some of the people i've been listening to there's also a talk of like let's just create like something that is really bad that doesn't exist but that will scare people just enough to band together um and like we have to be very careful and analytical about how much we scare them because too much and too little are both useless positions to be in so that's quite interesting to me as well yeah yeah it would be really interesting to see like you know what we come up with because i'm quite hopeful we have smart people working on smart things and um it will be interesting to see what we as a people identify with because i d there is that feeling now that we're turning into digital nomads and nothing to claim nothing to hold on to um and uh, nothing to be proud of and so, yeah, it, yeah, hopefully that gets fixed. Yeah. 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 I also think it's important to acknowledge that when there is this void that opens up, some people will become more ignorant, but there will be real malevolence as well. 
and at the core of malevolence is still trauma but i think it's important not to try to collapse all malevolence into like something that can be excused so there are there are real top-down manipulations occurring as well not as Mm -hmm. much as the conspiracy theorists probably want there to be but there is also real bottom-up ignorance as well and the more fragmentation of the social fabric that occurs the easier it is for people to dominate others and the easier it is for people to become ignorant to being dominated right yeah in keeping with the decline of institutions can either of you make a case for anyone wanting to go to university in 2023 yeah i I personally still won't go to a doctor who doesn't have a degree. So at this point in time, maybe that will change in the future, but that's one example where I feel like you still need to go to university, buddy, because I'm not stepping foot in your practice (laughs) until I see that degree hanging on the wall, you know? (laughs) But like the, the guys that are taking like, I don't know, it's just specific to what you want to be. Um, but education definitely has a place, but that as a whole, um, needs a little bit of a remodel as it's currently getting, it's being excavated from the inside out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think the more technical a subject is, the more viable university still is, but the more like, uh, complex in the technical sense of that term complex or social it is probably the less important degrees are for that right now um yeah and as we know like there there are people moving out now to the fringes to educate themselves there's all sorts of information ecologies emerging online that are perhaps more informed than certain university processes um, but yeah, definitely it feels too early to completely jump the boat there. So yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely a place for it still. What do you, what do you think, Sid? Do you think we can cut it off right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, um, if my doctor has been to university, I, that's alarming for me. Um, if it's post 2020, <laughs> that's true. Because, yeah. Yeah. And no, because yeah, if his yeah. claim to education is the degree and I know that he learned that online and doesn't have a degree because he learned online because you can't treat someone's heart online. Not, not that you have to like replicate everything you um, are going to do. You have, you don't have to simulate that, you know, one for one in your training, but something about that is so jarring to me. Like, are you kidding me? Like you're the, the reason you're here is that paper on the wall if, if you told me that you learned at home and it's like, it's broken knowledge here and there, you know, like I'd probably trust you equally as I would to an Ivy league guy today. But like the further back in time I go, the, the less true what I'm saying is. That's actually a good point. Maybe, maybe we don't need the education part of it to be like so rigid and belong to an institution like Harvard for it to be reputable. Maybe we just need some sort of, um, like um, prove that you've learned space where you learn however you want and you come to the space to prove it. And then once the the space where you can prove it um, accepts that you have proved it, then you get qualified. So maybe the education part can be done however you want, but I still feel like you need to prove it. <laughs> one big gladiator demonstration. I think one thing people take for granted about university is a lot of it's not actually about the technical process itself. A lot of it is actually the uh, real world protocols and professionalism that they're trying to steer you towards. So you, you can learn all these things on your own, but you're not learning them in coherence with others. And so there's no, you might know how to do the skill, but you don't know anything about the context that the skill takes place inside of and you like coding is a really great example of this software engineers that have taught themselves are often a nightmare in a corporate environment they can code but they have absolutely no understanding of anything beyond that and often they end up being more of a dead weight than Mm. like a working part of the process and i think that would be amplified in a place like a hospital 
Uh, These places are not so much about brute understanding. They're actually more about like the cohesion of the spirit of the machine that's running. That's yeah, that's exactly the, like my biggest reason for why I'm sort of seemingly preemptively invalidating university because, um, integration into a social fabric is the one thing you don't get from online learning, right? Which is the one biggest thing that you would hope to get from university, which is the university experience, which is the interpersonal. Yeah, yeah, that was really the the time that they beat the dead horse, man, was when they made it online. Yeah, we were just talking yesterday about how like it's so, so impressive that all these universities have these online free courses, but it just shows that the product they're selling is the uh, the logo, not the um, not the subject matter, which is exactly what you guys are saying as well now. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Harvard business model, uh, if I can just go on the spiel about how incredibly cool and fuck that business model is. So you you pay, you pay so that they can maybe accept you, then they accept you and you get the badge. But the best thing that Harvard does is they let people like Bill Gates, who don't go to Harvard, they let them first become established individuals, then they offer them a free degree, and then he puts the badge on his name voluntarily after he's done all the hard yards, and now Bill Gates is a Harvard alumni, and you're just associating with Harvard, even though he has nothing to do with Harvard. They come in at the right time. The timing is just amazing from them yeah yeah it's uh, not that Bill Gates is someone to aspire to be (laughs) yeah (laughs) um any closing thoughts on that I have one last touching point okay um more of an open-ended question so we can just discuss this in whatever direction seems natural, but what do you guys reckon is at the bottom of all human motivation? Just to get the easy questions done, you know? Love. Okay. Sajin, before you say yours, can I guess yours? Um, but okay, but let me first think what mine is because I want, I'm, I, I probably think it is love, but I'm going to intentionally say something else so, just so that we can have a discussion. If but I was thinking about what Tom's, else it can be. I would have said love. Definitely. Tom, if you had to guess mine, what do you think it would be? I think different parts of you would say different things. yeah yeah i'm constantly fluctuating between hope and love yeah yeah i don't know man i i feel like a lot of what drives so is it what drives action right yeah what what motivates activity so yeah i feel like in today's today's setup the current setup, a lot of what drives action is hidden narcissism. Like it used to be like a fully, like you diagnose it and you're a full narcissist. But I feel like now that tiny bit of narcissism that existed in everyone is amplified now because um, Andy Warhol talks about everyone's going to get their 15 minutes of fame. Um, And everyone's a bit traumatized and a bit insecure about their past and everyone wants respect and love. And TikTok and Instagram pr- provide the most accessible level, I mean, the most accessible barrier to entry to fame that there's ever been. And so um, this little narcissist, this tiny, tiny one that exists inside of everyone um, is coming out to play now for everyone because that fame is at the doorstep for everyone. Now, it, it was never the case. You were either Robert Plant and you performed in front of the Madison Square Garden and you went home. And you were a rock star, but now um, fame's at your doorstep. So that's why everyone's trying to give themselves sad stories a lot of the time, man, because they're, they're setting themselves up for how for fame, and it's so accessible. So it's like I'm gonna keep if I'm currently depressed, and this is obviously um, please don't take this as the real reason for depression, but if I'm currently depressed, I'm gonna stay here for a little bit so that I can define this as a period in my life 
so that when I make it one day, as someone who's famous, yeah. I can say I had a big block of depression and I made it through that and I can have that hero's story. And that hero's story wasn't so important in the past because fame was so inaccessible, but now it's so accessible. Interesting take. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I fully hear you in that. Like, I think that this is another great example of the revenge of a polarity, right? You get the axial religions who just completely squish the the self drive, the self interest drive, uh, and they don't do it in a the way the indigenous might, where they kind of nurture you out of it and then give you like a they give you something instead. It's like you can't be this egoic self, but you can be part of the tribe and like here's who you are and this is who we are in relation to the cosmos. But then in the axial age they kind of squish that out of you, but they don't have the same kind of whole wholesome replacement for that. And so we've just sort of dampened something down again, created a, a void in the individual. We don't know how to fill that, but now we've lost the thing, keeping it down. And so it's coming back full with full revenge. And in a sense, it's quite profound. And there's like even a kind of twisted beauty to it, but yeah, it definitely feels like it's heading off a cliff. But I think the it may be like an interesting uh, contrast to this idea of like how our victim, we can kind of almost like performatively become the victim, which is true. Like that happens. I think like in a way deeper than that, life's actually just so fucking hard that no one needs to pretend to be the victim because we already are. You can pretend to be the victim, but you're just actually denying the fact that you're already a real victim when you're doing that, which I think is another kind of coping. You can like performatively be the victim so you don't have to face the fact that you're actually a victim. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah. Like life, yeah. one sense, life is fucking difficult. In another sense, it's glorious. It's joyful. It's it's the most amazing thing it could be. But yeah, that things people will do for the grab of attention is an interesting topic. Yeah, that, that may, wraps around to... in a really, sorry, go ahead. No, go for it, Sid. I'll come back in afterwards. I was just going to say that wraps around in a really interesting way what you said, like the guy who's performing um, the victim um, trope actually is the victim but doesn't know it, but does know it, and that's why he's performing. That's a, I think that might be our first original idea on this podcast, so... <laughs> <laughs> let's go 18 what 19 episodes in <laughs> made it yeah what do you think about it Sid this specific uh, strain of victimhood the victim yeah, yeah, on top I of fully, a victim fully concur with everything both of you said nothing really new to add there um, I find it getting more and more, <laughs> no, yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah. I agree with everything you guys said. Do we need, uh, like Tom, do we need that relate? Like, do we need to be doing that, you know, playing the victim to avoid the reality that you are a victim? Do we need to be doing that? Maybe I can answer in a more broad way, but it feels to me like in, in this tension of the polarities, you are always being guided towards what you're missing. But every time you go down that path of playing that out, there's always the risk of getting lost at the other end. So like, yeah, I think we kind of need, we need to express all these different things, but the there's like a harmonious path of doing that where you play each missing note at just the right time for just the right length but typically what happens is you play the note that you realize is missing and then you get stuck in it and you just start playing it over and over again because in the moment where you play it there's a kind of revelation but that revelation mm. you're afraid to let go of that so you just keep hitting it until it's gone again and then only once it's gone will the next one reveal itself. And yeah. and in that principle, would you say that the person who discovers 
or has the revelation dawned upon him, does he overstay his welcome? Because it was low-hanging fruit, and it's like, oh, I have to like milk this for everything it is before I... He, does, he doesn't even think of moving on, right? Yeah, what it does, I think a lot of it depends on the agenda, right? And this is one of the interesting things about capitalism is it it's really good at overstaying its welcome. It's oh, just agenda. it's just this extraction to the bottom. You said their gender. <laughs> <laughs> well, genders are really good at, at overstaying their welcome as well. In 2023, they've finally left or whatever. <laughs> continue, Tom. I think I was done. All right. Well, we normally um, end with like a rapid fire word association thing with all our guests. So standard rules apply. You know, I'll just say a um, word and then either try and try and say the first word that comes to mind. But me and Sashin have found that this has been very difficult for our guests. Like for some reason, there's always this follow on question or not, even though I try to make this as straightforward as I can. Um, but before that, did you have any closing thoughts on what we talked about so far, Sashin? Um, I found, I always say this to Tom, at, like at the end of most of our discussions that I sort of have a like vision or like I rough idea of how it's going to go. And it usually goes exactly along that line, like throughout the whole conversation and even like today it was a bit more planned and I had a few things I wanted to talk about roughly, but even when I don't, I, there's like a line that we never really stray away from. You might even call that the through line. Um, but yeah, it's always exactly how I want it to go. And it's, yeah, that's a compliment. There's a consistency in Tom that he always shows up in a very particular way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah, I enjoyed the conversation as well. Nothing, nothing to add. Hopefully, just an um, another more episodes that we can have. You know, nothing to add onto this one, I guess. Oh, can I just briefly say something about that before you move on? Uh, and also, just say that I think word associations are quite revealing. So I think that's probably why people double take at them. It says a lot about a person's psychology. But yeah, I'm keen to do that. But final yeah. thought. Um, yeah. I think if you don't have a myth, you need a practice that embodies principles. And to me, what we're doing in a dialogue like this is we're engaging in a practice, the practice of dialogue, and we're invoking the principles to live by. But we're not doing that through a story. Rather than grounding the principles in a story we're actually grounding them in a process and so one of the reasons it's reliably in this vein is because i would say when we come together that's what we're seeking to do we're not actually engaging in just a typical conversation we're engaging in a practice of dialogue that's attuning us to the patterns of reality that we would normally encode into a myth but in this case we're actually trying to move the center of gravity to a process itself and the cool thing about a process is it can't be captured in the same way a myth can. So that, yeah, and that that segues into what I'm working on right now. But I won't, yeah, that's not a story for today. But yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. This is why we do it. Like, this is why dialogue is so powerful. It's an attunement and an alignment simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And and maybe that's why it's dialogue in this public form has become so popular. Like, it it's blown up. I, th I think the next wave of religiosity will be grounded in this form of dialogue. I mean, it already is. Like people would say it's not, but it is. Like this is religious. What we're doing right now, in in a very specific definition of that term, but yeah. In the like, just before we do the rapid fire, um, if in the process versus I don't know why that's funny, but <laughs> in the process versus it's going to keep thing, going. <laughs> like, yeah, is there yeah, sort of a great hour? Is there sort of a gradation of rank or like, yeah, some sort of tiered hierarchy within the uh, epistemic understanding that each might provide comparing process and myth? Well, that 
for me gets into like pretty deep territory, but I would say that process and myth are reflections of a deeper structure and how I'm currently relating to that structure is that each of the modes, so process is a mode, myth is a mode, each of those modes has a place. So the modes are distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable. This is Forrest Landry's work. And so none of them are necessarily more important than the others. But what is important is how you flow between them. Super abstract, but there's something very important there. And most of the problem our culture is facing right now is it's got the flow the wrong way around, where the machine is imposing itself onto the human and nature rather than being in service to the human and nature. It's the same in a totalitarian governance rather than bottom up, allowing the people to decide the, the governance and the choice making, the, the governance and choice making imposes itself as a binary structure of good and bad onto the people. It's all about the flow, not, not a rank ordering on a gradient. Okay, I won't I won't say anything to that. I'll, I'll thank you for that, but I won't respond specifically to that. Um, are you ready for the game, sir? Indeed. Okay, abstinence. Six. Okay, um, the philosopher's stone. Harry Potter. Rocky Balboa. Muscles. The dumbest philosopher. SpongeBob. <laughs> Nirvana. Enlightenment. Tennis. Racket. Ancient Egypt. Pyramid. Jeffrey Epstein. Rape. <laughs> That's the most successful version we've had so far. Yeah. Yeah. On point. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for that to both of you. Yeah, no. Thank no, you're you welcome. Guys. This has been a treat. <laughs>